The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. This morning we're going to look at uh, the end of, of Mark's Gospel. Um, we as a church family have been going through this book of Mark actually over two years. So we did uh, eight weeks late last year. We've gone through it beginning of this year and we're finishing on this section around the resurrection. I'm not going to read the whole thing this morning. Um, I'm really just focusing on two particular verses, but um, what, what you find with, with the Bible and with people who are writing stories about Jesus is they just keep writing similar things over and over again to remind people of the truth. Uh, how, many, how many here forget things. Good, there's a few of us. Um, how many here have forgotten really, really important things? Things that you were supposed to take with you. Maybe it's a USB stick with your assignment to school. Maybe it's something you're supposed to bring to work. Uh, I remember a, a time 11 years ago, uh, my wife and I uh, had had our firstborn son and uh, she had wanted to go and do a trip over to New Zealand and so she gave me a whole lot of like, okay, if I'm going to go, here's what you need to remember. And so she gave me the list of things and how to look after him. He wasn't even one. And, uh, but at the same time, we had this Indian ringneck, this yellow Indian ringneck, of which had been unwell. And so for Carly to, to leave me uh, to look after not only my child, but also the animals was a very scary thing. And so uh, she gave me all of the instructions as to how I'm supposed to look after uh, Mr. Indian ringneck. Uh, his name was Coco was. Um, so anyway, so she goes to New Zealand and we're talking on the phone one day and she's like, how's everything going? I'm like, babe, I've told you a million times, I've got this. I'm a fully grown man. Stop treating me like a little boy. Your child's alive. Your bird's alive. All is well in the Lewis household. Go do you. Anyway, next day I sort of wake up, get changed, you know, do the thing, get the coffee, have breakfast, head to work. And about 15 minutes of driving to work, I realized... I'd left the not-yet-one-year-old still at home. And I completely, completely forgot my son. Uh, now, he's here this morning. He's still alive. Um, we're not sure how well he's doing, but he's alive. Um, and I'd completely forgot him. So I'd literally spent the first hour of my morning going around, getting everything ready, and I'm just like, this life is good. And I've hopped in a car. I've driven all the way. And just before I've gone to work, I've realized, ah, there's no kid in the baby capsule. So, of course, I didn't tell Carly that I'd forgotten her most precious possession, her child. Uh, she rang me that night. Everything's fine, babe. Everything's fine. And then the next day, I was so caught up in worrying about him and making sure I don't forget him a second day, I'd forgotten to look after the bird, and the bird had died. So my wife had given me so many instructions. She was even writing them down, and I was completely emasculated by her writing down these things so that I wouldn't forget and within 48 hours, I'd forgotten her child, who was also my child, just so you know. <laughs> and I had uh, allowed her bird to die. Uh, we forget things all the time, and we forget important things all the time. There is a creed in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15. It is the first ever Christian creed that was written. And we, we know historically that it was written within the first 12 to 24 months after Jesus had res resurrected from the dead. And it's this creed that is kind of reminding Christians of the truth of Jesus' resurrection. That this is the thing. If you don't get anything else, if you don't get the five steps to your marriage and how to do your finances and how to do this and how to do that, if you forget everything else, don't forget 
this. And the way that Paul starts this when he's writing in, in 1, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he goes, and I delivered it to you as a first importance what I also received. In other words, this is a creed that we are telling each other to remind each other. And so when the, the writers of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, are writing things, they're writing things to invite those of us in this room who don't believe in Jesus to come and believe in him. Here's his record. Here's the history. Here's why you can trust him. And for those of us who are Christians, but we just get resurrection amnesia and we just forget because we are busy doing family, doing career, doing study, doing all the things. And we forget not only did the resurrection happen, but it changes everything, including your Monday. Not just Easter, Resurrection Sunday, but it changes absolutely everything and it gives us a living hope. So I'm going to give you four things from just two verses in Mark chapter 16 about why we can have hope in the resurrection. Number one is that the resurrection is always, in every account, it's grounded in historical reality. The people who are writing the Bible don't want you to believe that something is mythical or legend. They want you to know it's history. It's reality. This actually happened. In fact, at the end of that creed, uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, If Jesus did not rise from the dead, that anyone who believes in him is a fool. What a waste of time. What a waste of energy. Do you know that over this weekend, there will be just under 3 billion people, 3 billion, who will set aside their Sunday weekend and do either a Good Friday and a Sunday or just, just the one, like kind of what we're doing, three billion people are going to go to church and say they believe in this. Why? Because we believe it's actually grounded in history. So what the authors say is that Christians are not different simply because they live by faith, because everybody lives by faith. Everybody is putting their hope and their trust in someone or something to fix their world, to give them meaning, to give them purpose, to give them significance. Everybody is living by faith. The Bible writers, the people who are writing the New Testament history, want to say that the difference between Christians and non-Christians is not that we live by faith, but that we live by faith in something different. In someone different. Someone that really died in history and really rose again. So this is what uh, Mark says in chapter 16, Verse 6, he says, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. This is a person. This is a real Jesus. And he comes from Nazareth and you know him and you all saw him. For those of you who've been with us for a while, there are literally hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem who have seen him be crucified. They know he's been crucified. They've mocked him. They've seen him. He's been in the middle of their entire city up on a hill. So everybody knows that's Jesus of Nazareth. This is a real human person. When I was exploring faith, one of the things that I struggled with is how do I know that the Bible is true? How do I know? 
And one of the things that has helped and greatly been an encouragement to me is that the Bible is eyewitness accounts. It is people who constantly say, we saw, we touched, we heard, we were with him. So the book of Luke starts off like this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely. We know from Luke, he, he literally interviewed at least 500 eyewitnesses. All things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He's writing to a wealthy person, a wealthy family in Rome to say, I've gone to Jerusalem, I've gone to Israel, I've interviewed all of these people and now I've compiled the narrative of which they all say happened. And then he says in verse 4 that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now it's important for us to know that to say that you saw Jesus meant that you were possibly going to die like Jesus. The Romans, actually in the first century, make it illegal to be a follower of Jesus and to claim that Jesus is Lord, because that is treason. And so for all of these eyewitnesses, they're not just saying it because it's cool. They're not just saying it because it's trending on Twitter and Facebook and all the social media outlets and like, yeah, hashtag Jesus is alive, that's cool. They're saying it at the risk of their own lives. And so the reason they say it is because they believe it to be true. So what Mark does in this particular part of his account, we, we kind of read from the end of 15. He kind of lets us know a few historical facts. One, verse 43 of chapter 15 says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also uh, himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This is the idea that in Jewish first century culture, most people who die were poor. So they do not have enough money to have a cave to afford a burial cave for their family. So what they would do is they would take a dead body after it's kind of been dead for a few days. They would literally take it and put it into uh, the outside walls of Jerusalem, a place called Gehenna. It's, it's their, like, their Dacobin dump. That's essentially what it is. All the dump goes there, and because a poor person cannot afford to be cremated or buried or whatever, what they did was is they actually put them in the dump and they set it on fire. So you, you read stuff in Matthew where Jesus is kind of describing how things would look in Gehenna. But Joseph of Arimathea, or Arimathea, he is this person who's on this council. He's one of the ones who has been trying to set Jesus up to be crucified. He's one of the ones who's been in the council who's tried to send out people to go and catch Jesus out and blasphemy so we can kill him. He's been a part of this group of people who all the way through Mark has been against Jesus. Everybody knows who he is. He is wealthy and he owns a family burial site. And so he offers, he goes and puts himself at risk and says, hey, he's dead. Can I have him and can I please bury him in my family thing? This is important because everybody knows him and now everybody knows where Jesus is buried. You put him in Gehenna, you set him on fire, there's hundreds and hundreds of bones there. Now the whole Jerusalem know where he is. But Mark does something extra. Mark actually says three times he mentions his list of ladies' names. So we saw this last week. Every time I look down, I keep seeing this cool mask. 
so tempted to put it on. Verse uh, 15, verse 40, it says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. Okay? He said that last week. Remember, we looked at how important that was, that he's using females. He's going against what would be popular. He's going against what would be acceptable in the culture. Why? Again, to say this actually happened. Then in 1547, he says, Mary Magdalene, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And then in 16 verse 1, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. So what you see in the account of Mark is three times, one after another. Bang, bang, bang. 15 verse 40, 15 verse 47, and 16 verse 1. He repeats these names over and over and over again. Why does he do that? Well, this is what Richard Borkham, a British scholar, who understands something about ancient historiography, however you say it, he says this. He says, ancient historians gave more credence to the oral histories of still living eyewitnesses. They put those sources as more valuable than written documents. Why? Because if the eyewitnesses were still around and they were still alive, you could cross-examine them yourself. You could corroborate what they said. Therefore, living eyewitnesses were always the source of choice for history in the ancient world. So here what Mark is doing is Mark is saying, this happened in history. This is real. How do I know? Go and talk to... The ladies, go and talk to Mary Magdalene. Go and talk to Joseph and Salome. Go and talk to these ladies. They're still out there. And then I love what that creed continues to say after it talks about the fact that Jesus, uh, that he wants to remind them and that we should you know, continue to believe it. He says this, this is the actual creed, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. In other words, historians say there are at least close to a thousand people who spent time with Jesus after he rose again. So Mark says, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, is no longer crucified. It's historical. It's reality. You can have hope. This is true. And this group goes from 120 to 500 to 3,000 to within a couple of years, we're at 30,000. Within 20 years, we're at 100,000. And we are starting to turn the Roman Empire upside down. So much so that they have to start persecuting Christians because they're going crazy. Why? Because people come to believe that this Jesus really rose. Number two is that the resurrection is not only grounded in history, but it also removes our fears. Notice that the angel says, do not be alarmed, right? So these people, these, these ladies come, they see the tomb, they go into the tomb, and he's not there. And they're like, uh-oh, what happened to Jesus? Who's taken his body? Where have they moved him? Have the Romans got him? Have the Jews got him? What has happened? What is their initial reaction? It's one of fear. He's like, what are we going to do now? Where is he? We don't have him. And he says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Here's why you should not fear. He has not been taken. He has not been moved location. He has risen from the dead. He's not here. He's alive. Do you realize if you are a Christian that every time you experience fear, 
the antidote to that fear is this day in history. Jesus rose again from the grave. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. The resurrection changes everything. If Jesus really was crucified, as he predicted he would be, and rose from the dead three days later, as he predicted he would be, then everything else Jesus said and taught must be true. There are some things in this book that I struggle with, but I always land on the fact that if some dude can say, I'm going to be killed in this way by these people, and he can't force a Roman empire to do it in this way, if he can fulfill over 200 and something prophecies from the Old Testament in literally one week's worth of time, and then he can raise himself from the dead as he said he would, then whatever that dude says, I'm going with him. I'm rolling with that guy. You can have all of the stuff. You can have all of your reasons. You can have all of your, your hiccups and all those things. But I'm just going to go with that guy. Because it seems to be, to me, that if someone can raise themselves from the dead, they're probably different. So the angel says, don't be afraid. And they're like, oh, okay, sure. Here's why. Jesus is alive. So for those of you in the room that are Christians, and maybe those of you who are not Christians in the room, can I just say this to you? Every time you worry about COVID and the implications, you've forgotten about the resurrection and its implications for your life. See, if Jesus can take care of death and provide an eternal family, for you to belong to and to secure your entire life for not the next 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, but the next billion years, you can trust him with your bills. You can trust him with your marriage. You can trust him with your singleness and your loneliness. You can trust God with whatever it is that you are going through. Every time for those of us who are parents who worry and feel the weight of the, our children is on our shoulders and we're worried about how they're going to turn out, we need to be reminded of the resurrection. The resurrection tells us that God loves our kids more than we do, that He actually predestined them, that He's actually purposed them, that He's actually designed them. He's actually got more love and care for your kids and my kids than we do. And He promises that He will look after them. We don't have to carry the weight as parents anymore. We can actually say, no, that weight falls on God. And He has, for some reason, I'm not going to question Him, but I kind of do. He's some reason chosen this guy to look after these guys. God's with you in your parenting, in your study, in your career. Some of you guys are young and you've had a rough 12 to 24 months of study because of COVID. And you're worried about your, your results. You're worried about where you're going to go. The Bible tells us that Jesus rose from the dead for you. He will take care of your future. He will look after your future. Without the resurrection, all the weight of our study, all the weight of our career, all the weight of providing provisions for us falls on us. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then we need not fear because our heavenly Father, the all-sovereign one, has promised to care and love and be near to us and help us with our needs. Not just the big stuff, the small stuff, the minimal, those little things that you just worry about in the morning when you're on your way to work or you've got to drive here. God cares. And Jesus has proven that through rising again. And if you think about these people, they all flee before the resurrection. 
They're scared of everything, filled with fear. When Jesus is executed, they think they're next. And so they run and they hide and they sort of come together and band together. And I can tell you, I don't know what it was like, but I can sort of go back in history and kind of sort of subjectively think that they were organizing and trying to plan of how the heck they are going to live in this world after following that guy who just died. But between there and when you get to the book of Acts, something happens because within a few years, even the Romans said that these Christians, these followers of Jesus, are turning their empire upside down. What happened? What shifted? They saw Jesus. And they were convinced it was Jesus. And they spent 40 days with Jesus and their fears were gone. Because you can't touch me. If I'm with him, if you're here in the room and you are a Christian, you are with Jesus. Nothing can come against you. No weapon formed against you can prosper. These are verses in the Bible. These are truths of which not just certain groups of the Christian world can quote. Even us more conservative types, we can quote these good ones. They're okay. God does have plans for our future. It's okay to have that. If you want it on the mug, fine. I probably wouldn't go that far, but hey, you do you. There are good promises in the Bible that it's good to know. Jesus rose from the dead. Anything else that comes at me is no bigger than death. And he has conquered it and he is with me. I love this because this tells me that I am not on my own, that Jesus is with me. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you feel like you are doing everything on your own. Own. It's hard work and you are struggling and you don't know how to get through. This is what the promise of the Christian faith is, is that God is with you. So you don't have to do your study all on your own. God is with you. We pray with our kids all the time now that they're getting into middle school and stuff when they've got assessments. They're freaking out. They're stressing out. It's like, yep, do, do the work and then remember, God's with you. God's with you. You don't have to do your relationships on your own. God's with you. You don't have to do your career on your own. You don't have to cut corners. You have to do things to try and get ahead. God's with you. You don't have to face your anxiety. You don't have to face your depression. You don't have to face your struggle on your own. God is with you. Number three, he provides complete forgiveness. About a month ago, I sat down with a, a bisexual male, and we talked for nearly, nearly three hours over multiple coffees. And this, this person's not a Christian, don't believe in God, they would call themselves an atheist, and we, we just got talking and talking and talking. And every time I sit down with someone, whether they're Christian or not a Christian, doesn't matter what their story is, doesn't matter where they're landing on any of the, the sort of issues of our day, I'm yet to find the person who after enough time with them, they won't tell you their brokenness. It will come out. Every single one of us feels the weight that we are not who we should be. We know it, we feel it. It's instinctive. You can't get away from it. It's why we often go to certain things to try and fix the things that we don't like, or we blame shift, or we hide them, or we just don't talk about it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. What I love about Jesus is Jesus says, let's talk about it so I can get rid of it and fix it. Jesus here, it says in verse 7, but go tell his disciples 
and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Now, for those of you who haven't been with, with us throughout the series, Jesus has told them before they would flee and before they would let him down and before they'd be weak and faithless, he has said to them, hey, you're all going to desert me and when you're done, I'll meet you in Galilee. He never told the ladies this. The ladies go and meet this angel and this angel says to them, hey, listen, Jesus is alive. He's risen now. I've got a special message for you. I want you to go and tell the boys, the boys who are hiding, the boys who are afraid, the boys who feel like they have let their Savior and their Messiah down, who cannot handle their brokenness and their fracturedness, tell them, in essence, I've already forgiven them. It's already done. Get to Galilee. I'll be there waiting for you. Jesus isn't waiting for them to get to Galilee. He says, tell them that I will see them there. He is going before you to Galilee. I love this. This is Jesus saying, I'm not waiting for you to get to me. I'm not waiting for you to fix yourself up and to, to sort of get cleaned up and stop making messes. I'm telling you, I've done that because I died and I rose. So let's go. I've forgiven you. It's free. It's on offer. I love this about Jesus. I've got so many things in my life that I don't like. And every time I stand and, and I look in the mirror and I think about me, I don't like that. But when I bring those things and I remind myself that Jesus died on the cross and he has forgiven me of all of those things, he has taken the sin and the shame away from me, I can now look at myself and go, well, I'm not looking just at me. I'm looking at the man that God loves, that God delights in. This is so freeing. This is why I love the Christian faith. It is the only way to actually move forward within our brokenness. Because Jesus is offering. He is saying, I have already forgiven you. Some of us in the room have this view of God that he's like this, this insecure referee, right? Whistles in the mouth. He's got his hands in his pocket. He's so ready to get out the cards. He's just so ready. He's just looking. He's just waiting for you to all mess up. And since you mess up, you, you're gone. It's actually the opposite. Just like, you know what? Before you even mess up, I'm going to do something about it so that you can be completely forgiven for the rest of your life. And you never have to walk around with shame or guilt with your sexual past, your relational past, your monetary past, anything. Your family history, you don't have to ever feel shame again because I will rescue you from it. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And then Isaiah 1.18, Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. I don't know if you've ever been in snow. I don't know if you've ever been, like, we went to New Zealand a few years back and we went and we stayed in this cabin and that night it started snowing and we kind of had this, like, this outdoor eat area, you know, it's like one of those sort of outdoor barbecue areas where you could sit down and there's a family and eat. And when we woke up, we couldn't see the table. It was covered in snow. All we could see everywhere was white. If you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus, that is how Jesus sees you. No shame, no guilt. And then lastly, number four. And I think this is my favorite part of the whole of the book of Mark. Is the resurrection gives us hope for, tra uh, for transformation. Look at what he says 
specifically to Peter. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, if you just give me three minutes, let me backtrack and then we'll finish. 24 hours ago, they were sitting around a meal eating the last supper it's known as. And Jesus has been walking them through the fact that he is going to die and he's going to raise again to new life. And he kind of changes this, this ritual, this ancient ritual, ritual that the Jewish people have been doing for thousands of years. He says, we're going to do a new ritual. You're going to take the, the juice that's going to represent my body, my, my body. You're going to take this bit of bread. It's going, to, it's going to represent my body. And then he tells them that they're going to stuff up. And there was one guy who spoke up. Do you know what his name was? Peter. Peter's always the guy who speaks up. And Peter's like, no way. You just said to me like a few weeks ago that I was going to be like Petros, the, the rock that you're going to build the church on. I'm Peter. You know what I mean? I'm Barney. You know what I'm saying? Some of you don't get that. That's fine. I'm Peter. I'll, I'll, I'll go all the way. He literally throws all of his mates under the bus and goes, even if they will not, I will follow you even to death. Like, they all suck. They're all weak. I am strong. Peter is the only one who actually goes to the inner courts when Jesus is being scourged. So he is eyewitnessing and watching the beating of Jesus. And it's there that the rooster crows twice and he remembers that Jesus said to him, Hey, Peter, even you're going to deny me, mate. And it says that he left and he runs out of the courtyard. And the, the Hebrew word, the Greek word there literally means he dry reaches in agony. He is so sick in his stomach. He is so disappointed in himself that he could not be strong. You see, if all these ladies do is come back and go, he said all the disciples meet him in Galilee, Peter could say this. Yeah, you guys go. He'll probably take you back. You can't take me. He might be able to forgive me. I don't think he could ever use me again. I don't think he could ever trust me. How could he trust me? I'm, I'm not a rock. I'm, I'm weak. I'm small. I couldn't last 12 hours. Jesus can't use me. And Jesus, what he wants to say is, but go tell his disciples and tell Haley. Tell Gareth and tell Josh and tell Meg and tell Shane, tell Rob, tell Liz, tell Beth. All of you. I would say every one of your names if I could. You. I will transform you. Peter. I predestined you, I designed you, I purposed you, I planned you, and just because you messed up doesn't mean your mess is bigger than me. Peter, get to Galilee. It's not just everybody else, because this is what we do in the Christian faith. God could forgive them, God can use them, God could do that for them, but God can't do that for me. You and I who are Christians, we love to give each other advice about the gospel. Well, don't you believe this? But as soon as it's our turn, we don't believe it. And Jesus personalizes this. He says, Peter, I said you'd be the rock and you are going to be the disciple, the apostle on which I'm going to build the church at Jerusalem on. 
In other accounts, he says, get to Galilee and strengthen your brothers. This is one of my favorite lines in the whole of the Bible because when I go there, I go, but go tell his disciples and Kylam. Flawed, broken, Kylam. And I'll transform you. And this is the hope because if Jesus really rose from the dead, then he really did defeat Satan, sin and death and he can do anything through anyone because it's about God and not about me. And at some point, Peter gets over himself and he trusts Jesus and he starts following and just going. And he becomes a hero of our faith and eventually they kill him. And he feels so unworthy to die a crucifixion death like his master, his Lord, that he asked to be crucified upside down. Such was his faith, such was his boldness. And Jesus has done this for you. Let's pray. God, thank you that all through the Bible we see these, these incredible men and women. And God, we are so tempted to look at them and either aspire to be like them or to feel like we could never measure up to them. God, and in many ways, both, both of those are, are wrong. Yes, in some sense, we should... We should see their, their faithfulness later on and the things they do for you and, and, and want to be like that. 100% we should do that. But we shouldn't do that in an absent-mindedness of the resurrection and your spirit empowering and transforming those people to be that way. That everyone apart from you is faithless. Everyone apart from you has no hope of being healed and whole and transformed and forgiven to have marriages restored and friendships restored. God, we don't have any hope of doing any of those things on our own. So every time we see someone in the Bible who is doing something amazing, it is supposed to point us back to you. And we're supposed to say, if you can do that with them, you can do something for me. And God, we're not supposed to look at them and feel insignificant and feel like we can't do it because it's not them it is you and you choose what you do with your people and so God I pray today that we would leave here filled in our souls with hope that you really died in human history that this is a historical reality God, that you have completely and utterly forgiven those of us who have put our faith in you. We are free from Satan. We are free from sin. We are free from shame. God, we need not fear anymore. And God, we have the hope that you are with us and can change us and transform us. And God, this morning as we sing, we pray that you would have your way that we'd have more and more stories of your incredible work in our lives. And may you get that glory because of your son, Jesus, who died and rose again. We pray in your name. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, 
and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.